Hello, everyone. Welcome to This Must Be the Place, the Building Science Podcast. I'm your host, Shauna Henderson. Each episode is a deep conversation with a carefully chosen peer about not just houses, but place. Yeah, of course we talk about houses and retrofits, but we also want to change the industry for the better, forever. Energy poverty, community engagement, industry disruption, societal responsibility, and climate change. It's all here and so much more. We're back with This Must Be the Place, your building science podcast. I'm your host, Shauna Henderson. So, you know, at the risk of dating myself and my guest today, um, you know, I first heard his voice, I think, 1990. It was the TVO series, The Better Built House or The Better Builder. I can't remember the exact title. And I spent a whole year with this man's voice in my head. He's one of the top experts in Canada and internationally in promoting innovation and best practices in the design, construction, and renovation of housing. Oliver Drerup, I am so happy to be talking to you this afternoon. Welcome. Thank you very much. I really appreciate your reaching out and having me on. It's uh, it's fun. Thank you. Well, and I got to say, like, like literally, like, I was in a, cor- a program in Manitoba, a one-year program, and the core course information was that uh, series. I, I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Uh, well, let's find out, shall we? Right. Well, no, you, you gotta know, say the I, words. You gotta say the words. I am capable <laughs> of being very pedantic, so I will. I will try to keep this light. Um. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a wonderful. It's been a wonderful experience working in the industry for as long as I have. And it, it's, I, I think I built my first house in 1971. Uh-huh. So it's been a long haul and you can date me anytime you want. I'm just, I'm straight up old. <laughs> no problem. I'm getting there. I'm just a little bit behind you. <laughs> so you built your first house in 71. You were working with, it was, uh, it was oh, um, David David Cantor and Elizabeth White and I right. built the first yeah. house, and then that morphed Drerup Cantor, Cantor White morphed into Alan Drerup White, right with Greg Allen, uh, which with Greg Allen, and we yeah. worked out of an office in Toronto, and we were it was very successful. We had a wonderful a wonderful run. And so, were you in the first? You were in the first generation uh, cohort of R two thousand builders and um, and advocates. Um, when the R two thousand program originated, uh, the people who were running it needed builders whom they could hold up to the industry as examples of what they were talking about. And I was very fortunate to be one of the few that they identified to be able to do that job and was therefore uh, sort of married to the project for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And it mm-hmm. was, uh, it's a, it's a wonderful project. Uh, the, um, <clears throat> 
to, in order to give this discussion a bit of structure, can we talk just a moment about what, how one gets houses built in the first place? Yes, please. If we back away from the actual nuts and bolts of the problem and look at the, look at the social requirements of putting a house together, um, one good way to think about it, although these are in no particular order, it's just an, an order that's easy to describe. Mm-hmm. Let's start with codes. Building codes have been around for Hammurabi's code had right. a code seventeen fifteen hundred years before Christ. Yes. So building codes are not new. No, and that one actually got you decapitated for killing other people because of crappy um, construction practices. I think we should bring that one back in. Precisely right. Yeah. <laughs> well, there it, it would be, it would certainly make things very much more serious. And you know, it's important that that your listeners appreciate that codes are a minimum standard, not a maximum. Mm-hmm. Right. Codes are as just poor like, as you. Uh, it's the it's the code that determines how poorly you can build a house without going to jail. Exactly. Congratulations, you're just legal. Exactly. You just barely made it. Good for you. Now, mind you, codes have been improving, and it's very frustrating that we haven't seen them improve very much more quickly than they have over the last 30-some-odd years. But there you have it. So the first thing, or one of the first things to think about is codes. Now, codes require standards. If you don't have standards, you don't know what to say in the code. Which foam? What? How thick is the lumber? What span length? Uh, what? Uh, what fireproofing? You need mm-hmm. to have some standards comparing different building products in order that the codes can quote those standards. In order that we can write better codes, more scientifically appropriate building codes. Now, you can't have standards if you don't have R&D. You have to have a very significant investment in research and development in order to create the standards, which are then subsequently used in the codes. And it was the, it was the R&D that Canada had that mm-hmm. nobody else had. We'll return to that. Yes. Then you can have great codes, great standards, great R&D and still get garbage in the field because you don't have training and education. So you have to find a way to make all the things that stand up in the code understandable to the workforce that's going to apply them. Then you can't deliver houses unless you also have money. So you either need mortgages or you need tasks. So there has to be some form of loan, some ability to prove to the financial institutions in the society that what it is you're building is worth risking money on. Mm-hmm. I choose to call that mortgages, but it, it could be there could be other ways to deal, right. but there has to be something. For most of us, it's going to be a mortgage. And if you have that, you then are obligated to have some form of inspection service because nobody's going to loan you money on a house that you're building unless somebody goes out and checks to make sure you're doing what you said you were going to do in the first place. 
And then finally, if you have all of that, you can have a warranty. So to reiterate, I told you I was pedantic. Codes, I I know, I know all about you. Yeah, I'm sorry. (laughs) Codes, standards, R&D, training and education, money, inspection services, and warranty. Mm-hmm. Now, every and, and culture, would, would you would you pull into the mix the risk assessments for insurance in that? Absolutely, which is part of mortgaging. Absolutely, right. a part of it. And in fact, you find, for example, in the UK, the people who do risk assessment are so bewitched by fire and fireproofing that they have a great deal of difficulty or have had in the past a great deal of difficulty accepting timber buildings because they think they burn. They don't, Mm -hmm. but they Mm -hmm. think they do. And so you see this coming up depending on what society you're in. Um, It's an issue. Absolutely. Risk assessment is a very big deal. So you then wind up with if you can imagine this system now this is the housing delivery system now imagine that every country does certain parts of this really well and certain parts of it abysmally and they're always different parts Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so whenever you show up in a new culture you're going to discover that they have code standards r&d training in it but it depends on how strong it is, how much investment's been made, how many people are engaged in it, how transfixed the society is with the issues that are raised by it. And this alters depending on where you go. Right. You know what I would love to see? That I just had this this visual in my head of one of those really cool, um, you know, spider uh, web diagrams that mm-hmm. pulls one one component. If it's super strong, it's it's way out on the on the spoke and then other ones. That would be an interesting thing. Who do I talk to about getting money to do that? Hmm. <laughs> I don't know. But a series of those, you know, and, and you could even break it down into into like provincially and territorially. Absolutely, and 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 cross culturally, yeah. it could be done in other countries. Right. It's yeah. just extraordinary. So to give you to give you a couple of examples of this, um, the Brits are unbelievable in their site organization and their ability to deal with neighbors because their their building sites are very small and they're constantly surrounded by other people. They're, it's very rare in the United Kingdom that you get to build in the middle of a field somewhere. Mm-hmm. And so they have all kinds of programs. The home builders have programs, you know, that involve the immediate neighbors and suggest to builders how they can go out and talk to the neighbors and get everybody on side so that, you know, we won't come here before seven o'clock in the morning with any backup horns, we promise you, you know. Mm-hmm. And that kind of stuff, Canadians could learn an enormous amount from the way they organize their sites. Our sites, health and safety in the United Kingdom is a very, very big deal. I think that having bombs going off around the country kind of gets your attention. And, you know, here, when you sit down at a meeting, people will tell you, maybe, if they think of it, where the bathroom is located. 
In Britain, they not only tell you where the bathroom is located, but they make sure that everybody in meeting knows exactly where the meeting point is outside the building should any kind of a disaster occur while you're there. And that's just standard procedure. Hmm. You wouldn't have any meeting with a group of people without having that brought to your attention. So it's just an, it's, they, they have tremendous organizational strength when compared with their ability to deliver units, which is a very different proposition. Um, in Korea, they have machines that wash the tires on trucks before the trucks leave the construction site to go out on the road. Does anybody here ever get a broken windshield out on the road? You know, they just don't have that problem right? because right. they nip it in the bud. You're getting you're you do not take your machine out of the construction site until the wheels have been washed. That is so you're not throwing rocks as you're in traffic. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. you're keeping the road clean. clean. You know, yeah. there's an enormous amount to learn there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just want to jump in for a minute because what people don't know, and I didn't have a chance to say in the introduction, is you were head of the export division for CMHC, which is why you can talk with such authority about these various different cultures and, well, and I was countries. Hardly, I was hardly the head. I was not the manager. I was I was in charge of their technical work abroad. Okay. Uh, technical housing work, and um, they, and I, it was a wonderful team. I worked on a team with some very fine managers, I assure you. Um, but yes, I have a background in working in these other countries, and that's one of the reasons why I have this particular take on things. Mm-hmm. I guess. Anyway, the very can, big picture view. We can revisit lots of that, but yep. the point that I'm trying to make here is that this housing delivery system as it happened when the R2000 program, no, it actually starts in 71. In 1971, when people began to line up for gasoline, mm-hmm. governments everywhere said, geez, maybe we ought to look at energy conservation as a thing. And when they did that, most of them had very little in the code very few standards. Uh, nobody was doing much R&D, although there was a bit, except for Canada. And Canada had fabulous R&D because of a very small handful of people mm-hmm. who worked for the Division of Building Research across the country who had been financed all during the years between the war and 1971 to sit in research labs and think deeply about insulation. And they were asked to do that for a variety of reasons. One was the fact that refrigeration was an extremely important issue for meat packers and moving our food sources off the prairies to places like Chicago required an understanding of insulation, believe it or not. Um, And in addition to that, we have the dew line, which was being constructed by Canada and the United States, 
And we had to build buildings in the high Arctic and really didn't know how to do that properly at the time. So a tremendous amount of effort had gone in with a, you know, a relatively small number of people, Hutch and Metallus, Handegord, or, you know, just a, mm-hmm. a small mm-hmm. group of people who have really focused on this issue. So that when 71 came around and everybody started to say, oh, my gosh, we have to do something about houses, they had a much better understanding than almost any, no, than any other country on the planet. That was Canada's, we were punching way above our weight. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that then became so evident to a couple of really insightful civil servants that they realized it might be possible to structure a program around what we knew. And that was done in a very, very thoughtful manner. Um, It was understood that if you didn't bring the industry along with you, changing demands, in other words, altering the code, if you will, Mm -hmm. without accompanying that with the training and education, indeed even foreshadowing those changes with the training and education, in order to render the information palatable to the building community, so that they might actually endeavor to do some of these Mm -hmm. things was integral to the success of making the changes. And And that was the magic of the bit. So can you share the names of those people, the civil servants? Because I think they deserve a shout out if we can do that. Oh, they certainly do. Um, Charlie Fickner would be one of those people. But I just think it's, you know, we talk about, there's there's sort of you know people who are out in the industry who we who we know about Harold Orr and the other folks that you mentioned who were the building science folks but this insightful piece that that was like oh well we can't put the what's the cart and what's the horse what's right. the stick and what's the carrot those are the folks who who really helped to move everything along I would agree well let's let's take a look at that 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 begins with Money that was spent on a parade of homes in Saskatoon. Mm -hmm. The contribution that had been made by NRC, National Research Council at that point, was to build the Saskatchewan House, which was like Passive House, was a moonshot. Mm -hmm. And in fact, they got that wrong. They thought that what they were demonstrating was renewables. And what they discovered was that they were demonstrating air tightness. Right. But whatever the answer happened to be, it was the moonshot. And the question was, can this then be done by mortals? And so the parade of homes was intended to be um, a demonstration that it could, in fact, be done by mortals. Um, And the person who was probably most active in making that happen was Keith Hansen. And Keith Hansen at Sunridge Residential, uh, got behind that, and it was at the same time that uh, Dick Van E. came up with the initial heat exchanger Mm -hmm. for these units, and that kicked off the whole HRV 
development cycle, uh, also a piece of a very significant piece of R&D. And um, there is a there is a myth to what to how to what degree this is true in every aspect. I don't know. But at that time, the Canadian Home Builders Association was called HUDAC, Housing and Urban Development Canada. And they were primarily, they were located in Toronto and primarily represented the interests of the largest builders in the country, all of whom were essentially on the Niagara Peninsula, Mm -hmm. uh, with some notable uh, companies in Calgary and, and Vancouver. And their position on the suggested efforts by, at that point, it would have been Energy Mines and Resources, now NRCAN, the suggestion being made by Charlie Fickner uh, was that they'd really rather not, and would you please go away, and the code does not require any improvement, and in fact, uh, we have enough trouble building houses already, piss off. That's, that story hasn't really changed, has it? Uh, to a very large degree, I think that I think that what has to be said is that development is very hard, and mm-hmm. it requires an enormous amount of risk, mm-hmm. and it requires that you put up vast sums of money, and wait for very long periods of time, and it's like playing a a poker game over decades. <laughs> And Great the, way of putting it. And the internal fortitude required by developers in order to face that kind of pressure causes them to behave almost irrationally. It almost they would, for example, if you were to tell a developer that fifty-one percent of the buying public wanted a particular thing and 49% didn't, they would go with the 51. So they are just hedging their bets constantly, regardless Mm -hmm. of how close the difference of opinion might be between a slightly more expensive but better build or more wonderful structure that did very cool things and charged your car while you were at it and not making the investment, thank you very much because it scares me to death, the I won't spend the money wins every time. So Mm -hmm. it makes it very difficult for the developer to be a creative individual. Now, there are some, but... Boy, are but, they the, rare. but the business model is really not set up for that. It's, it's exactly a setup. Right. It's a different setup. Yeah. Well, as we yeah. both know, I mean, yeah. you've been watching this for decades, that it, and it just doesn't take very much for them to fail to be creative. It's very mm-hmm. easy not to do it. Yeah. Much easier and they, not. To and they do don't it. even. It's 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 not. And it and it doesn't stop at the developers either. It's with the builders because the builders have not. I mean, they've got they've got it dialed into a bottom line, but the bottom line they're not making a huge amount of profit. They don't have a lot of space to to flex creatively or to to take on any more risk because their risk is already so large and there's so many moving parts in the way that we build right now and and we're you know the scheduling is is based on different basically guilds or silos 
somehow managing to coordinate into a time frame. Absolutely that, right. Yeah, it's just it's the setup is wrong for yeah, any kind it, of. It, it is very and and the builders because they're the again the developer's profit margin is huge. The builder's profit margin is very small. Mm-hmm. So it falls to the developer to create the environment in which a builder can be creative. Mm-hmm. The builder themselves is very limited with what it is that they can do right. um, in general, generally speaking. In any event, the parade of homes was very much a success and the desire was to promulgate that through the Home Builders Association or HUDAC at the time. And Keith Hansen was selected as the person who was most appropriate to represent this opportunity politically to the powers that be at HUDAC. HUDAC didn't really want this to happen. So they decided to hire a young, brash, um, very bright, mercurial person to do the negotiation on their behalf because they felt that it was highly likely to fail. And if it did, they could all go back to being the way they once were. And it just happened that that individual was Joe Stebrick, Mm-hmm. And Joe was a University of Toronto engineer. Keith was an engineer. And the two of them loved engineering more than anything else. And so they wound up getting locked in a room in the Toronto airport and came out hours later with an agreement that Hudak was utterly flabbergasted, had <laughs> been reached, and that um energy mines and resources felt that they could live with and essentially that agreement was that the R2000 program as run by the federal government would be butterflied would be split in half and mirrored at every level in the home, home builders association or in HUDAC now that process wasn't articulated on day one, Mm -hmm. and that didn't happen for several years. But John Kenward, Dr. Kenward, who became, who was at that time with HUDAC and became the CEO of the Home Builders Association nationally, was a man of considerable vision who saw that this could be a meal ticket for the Home Builders Association and was willing to support it, especially if it gave him the staff that he required in order to make it work properly. Mm -hmm. And this butterfly concept did that because it meant that people like me, who became a technical director of the program for the Home Builders, was the opposite number of another person whose name is needed is Mark Riley, who was mm-hmm. on who was my right. opposite number on the other side. So Mark Riley was one of those visionaries, and under him, Robin Sinna. Right. And that methodology 
worked extremely well. And over a period of decades, the Home Builders Association took the thing on as their own right. and wrote manuals, wrote the manual. It wasn't the first. The first manual was written by Energy Mines and Resources at the time. And, and I should also mention here Brian Marshall, who was a right. colleague of uh, Keith Hansen's and who did an enormous, I mean, incredibly bright, amazing trainer, amazing curriculum generator. Um, extraordinary guy. And then there are a whole bunch of other people. Brian Bradley, for example, right. who is yep. in, located in Winnipeg and was the, the hands-on piece of the computer simulation program, Hot 2000, required to qualify homes as um, adhering to the requirements of the program. And he did fantastic work, and Gary Proskew and say, Chris Mattick, and yep. there were, you know, the the extraordinary thing about this story, the thing that's really cool about it that we really can be proud of, is that there probably are something in the order of 200 people, 250 people, and I mean, I can't remember everybody's name, and I certainly can't call it up in an interview because I'm just not bright enough, but this group of people, yourself included, you're, I mean, 250 of mm-hmm. us, absolutely, you're there, mm-hmm. Jennifer Corson is there, I right. mean, Elizabeth White is there, like everybody, all of us, the whole bunch of us together are maybe a couple hundred folks. And that group honestly changed the way houses are built in Canada. And as a result of the work that has been done elsewhere in the world and the recognition that Canada has achieved for what it's done, we've changed the way things are built all over. Uh, We've changed the way they're building in Russia uh, we've changed the way they're building in the Eastern Bloc. We've changed what they're doing in the UK. Um, it's it's quite it's quite a contribution, really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Don Fugler at one point had a conversation with Sam Rashkin down in the states. Yeah, and uh, and it was I actually heard them talking about this on stage at a, a one of the the conferences I went to in the states where they. Sam basically said, well, thanks so much for exporting all of your great, brilliant R&D and your building science know-how, and here you are, we're selling it back to you as the energy star houses, because we're really good at marketing. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> and the, I mean, that is that is Canada's failing. Canada's mm-hmm. failing is that when it comes time to profit from what the work we've done, we completely come apart because nobody has, well, let's take Passive House as an example. Mm -hmm. Passive House and the Saskatchewan House are for all intents and purposes identical. The Saskatchewan House was the first Passive House and Passive House itself recognizes that Mm -hmm. and gave Harold Orr an award for it. Um, The only difference between Canada and Germany in this regard is that Germany recognized that there were all kinds of cool things that they could sell, like windows and glazing and heat exchangers and such like, and put a very significant amount of money behind 
the promotion of Passive House, which is something that a Canadian just really wouldn't do because it's kind of commercial and unpleasant and we don't do that sort of thing. (laughs) You know, it's sort of an old British. It's the old. There are a lot. I should I should say a lot of the original work in R&D done by the National Research Council was done or based on what the British research establishment used to be. It is no longer that because Maggie Thatcher privatized them. And as a result, they are now a consultancy running around competing with all the other consultants looking for work and can no longer be viewed as an independent scientific authority. And that Mm -hmm. is a hell of a mouthful. Mm -hmm. The National Research Council can still be seen as a scientific authority. And in order to have meaningful codes and standards, one has to have an independent scientific authority. Otherwise, it doesn't work. Right. So we're talking about pure science and And people sitting in rooms and thinking deep thoughts and being allowed to do that as opposed to, well, you've got, you know, another six weeks on your project and then we're wrapping it up and we're moving on to something else. Exactly right. And so and so the the Brits established the ethos of the National Research Council at the beginning And then between the war and 1971, these guys, you know, Metallus and Hutchin and Hand of Gordon Orr, these were the people who were, who profited from that. And we were the beneficiaries of their ability to sit still and think. Mm -hmm. I love that story. Yeah. I mean, it really, it it really, it really, you've really encapsulated what this whole part of this of season three is about is the history. How did we get here? And who do we have to thank? We stand on the the shoulders of giants and very interesting people. And the, you know, this whole, um, you know, the institutional structure that doesn't exist so much anymore. (laughs) Outside of, outside of, you know, I'm being very, I'm being very polite. It's um, it's all it's all still there. It's all still there. It's that what happens, and this is in this this is this is this is nature. It's not, it's absolutely standard procedure in political discourse. We become comfortable, mm-hmm. and we don't pay attention, and we move our we our our focus wavers and. And we forget. We just actually forget. And then, you know, there is no institutional memory for this type of thing. Mm -hmm. And we, different people mine different bits and pieces of it over the years and has a, have a sense of where some of it came from or not. But it's, uh, we do so at our peril. And it is regrettable that we are not Continuing to invest, I mean, I, I'm I'm very frustrated. We, as you know, are going through an election in Ontario and several other places in the country coming up. And, you know, the housing is very expensive. 
Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. people are people are buying houses at above their asking price by quite a lot. Yeah, I just what the uh, hell is of, that? One of my colleagues um, lost out on a house that they went to on a rainy day and found that there was a lot of leakage points in the house and there were some significant significant problems with the house, and it sold for $275,000 over the asking price here in Nova Scotia, in Halifax. Like, that's insane. More than a quarter and a million dollars more than what they were asking for in an already inflated market. Well, this is is the problem. And so the question is, what does one do about that? And obviously, taxing... um, speculative property and eliminating the opportunity or taxing people who sell second homes and mm-hmm. all that kind of thing. Sure. There is a tremendous amount of leverage within the tax system that needs to be looked at. But for those, just a, a sidebar for the politicians out there who might ever listen to this podcast, who think you're going to do it by building your way out of it. You just aren't. Mm-hmm. Because we we need to do trades training like there is no tomorrow. We need to have every Ukrainian carpenter who can make it to the border is in. We need these people desperately. And, you know, I yeah. don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, and, and that's part of what, I mean, you're part of the impetus for me to create a, a training program. Good, good. You know, you're like, you need, like <laughs> you need to be in Ottawa. You need to be doing this. You need to be doing that. I'm like, nah, I'm in Halifax and I'm stuck here. You know, I'm not stuck here. I am planted here, rooted here. My kids are here. Happy you know, to be here. Yes. Happy to be here. Um, and then when when we got the opportunity to move this into on, online training, it's like, oh, this is a, a good vehicle for our industry because it allows people to, to stay on the tools. Um, you know, but we really definitely need to have we need to have a broader mix of people in here because, well, and you as need you to know, have more languages got... and you need to I mean, you're going to be delivering this in Korean in very short order. You're going to be delivering. We we have been training in Korea since 19, 2000 before round about 2000. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot there's a tremendous interest there's lots of people we have hundreds mm-hmm. of people who have qualified as super e builders there super e being super. the export program that goes with r2000 um it, this is this thing has legs mm-hmm. the problem is it doesn't have any money nobody right. wants to invest in you know the germans for their own reasons mostly having to do with the opportunity to sell related products have made a significant investment in passive house. Um, the Canadians have done no such thing. Mm-hmm. And so here we are. Here we are importing triple pane windows from Germany. Absolutely. And vent- ventilators. And ventilators from <laughs> Germany. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, and it's and it's it doesn't matter that it's from Germany. It's it's just it's from elsewhere. From the, outside, the, exactly. Yeah, right. this information and this this all this research has gone outside. Somebody else has has determined that they could make a dollar manufacturing, and and so again, you know, if we think about Canada as a 
Um, you know, there are so many places where we become a resource economy, and this is just another one well, of them. That's just another example. Absolutely yeah. so. But I mean, at the same time, we can take a great deal of pride in the fact that we can still, you know, hold our head up in mm-hmm. in all of these different venues. And um, I think that I think that people appreciate what we've provided. You said Sam Rashkin was thanking us. That's good. <laughs> and uh, um, until we decide to make a commitment to take it to the next level, that is we better be happy with that. Um, mm-hmm. On the other hand, we have an awful lot of work to do domestically. I mean, um, Ken Clausen, whose name hasn't come up yet. He's another Winnipeg guy. Excellent guy. Yeah. Ken and I are working with Jeff Armstrong um, on, a, cool. on a job in Nunutsavut uh, with uh, Tim McLeod as well. And um, these Nunutsavut needs everything we've just been talking about. They're, mm-hmm. they're starting a, a housing association which has responsibility for everything on this list, codes to warranty, you know, the whole list. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that is a daunting problem. And they are inadequately staffed and they don't, you know, there's just so much to do. And all of this, mind you, is in eight of five First Nation communities, but nonetheless, it's five communities. And we need to we need to do this all across the Canadian North. We need to we need to improve our our own housing. We need to clean mm-hmm. up our own backyard, and in the process of doing that, new opportunities will become evident. I'm confident of that. I want to talk about you know you being sort of retired, maybe kind of not really. <laughs> yeah, maybe not really. <laughs> well, that's been interesting. It's um it's quite it's quite fun. It's, uh, it's amazing to sit still somewhere. You know, mm-hmm. this is something that everybody needs to do in their lives. And it's, uh, it's highly desirable. Just sit still and watch and, and think. It's, yeah, I did. I used to good. do a lot of that. And then I got, you know, busy with running a everything and, and family, children, Dogs, cats, guinea pigs, toads. I had like we had a menagerie here when the kids were little, and and I f- kind of forgot how to just sit still and and allow things to move around me um, until this year. I had a couple of really um, intense. Uh, well, my mom died. I got a concussion and then I got COVID and I'm still suffer. I'm still oh, God. recovering. That sounds so, like so a it's like, triple whammy. Yeah. So, so August to now, so we're talking in the middle of May, um, has been the longest period of time where I have had to take breaks for emotional or physical reasons. I just could not. We are only beginning to understand how concussions work. Concussions mm-hmm. are not cool. Yeah, no, no, I had, um, yeah, it was awful. I mean, I, f- I feel like I'm, I just got over or got got used to working with my brain in a different way, and then I got COVID, and now I'm just like, you know, it's we're talking at five o'clock in the afternoon, my time. I will turn into a pumpkin in the next, you know, thirty minutes. 
in wow. terms of my brain. I just, it'll just shut well, off. Well, I'll, I'll try not sense. to tax you for the next 30 minutes. <laughs> but those, you know, but when you're, I guess I've been, those are extreme situations and I haven't actually been able to, you know, take in the things that I used to do when I was, um, you know, it, as a student and, and, you know, having big gaps of time to think. So that's been really nice. I really yeah. like, you know, I had this big whiteboard and I just fill it up with ideas and thoughts. And then I go away and I sit in my garden and I, you know, I now have six yards of soil to move around into a new garden. Well, that's basically, you've this. just described my life. That's basically <laughs> what I've been doing. And I do keep, I continue to work with the triple EA in the, in Korea. And uh, we are doing this project in the midst of it, but you know, it's it's all fairly low key and reasonably slow. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm um, I'm a I mean, I it takes me a much longer time to put my work boots on than it used to. It's it's disturbing. <laughs> it's uh, it takes uh, it takes time to get out there. But I'm getting I'm getting around fine. I'm all right. I'm, I'm enjoying myself. That's and, great. Um, and I it's. Um, it's fun to think about all the stuff we've just been talking about. It's uh, what an interesting, what a long, strange trip it's been. It's great. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I love the musical references because the name of the podcast is This Must Be the Place, which is Talking Heads reference. You know? right. Maybe we'll make a playlist. <gasps> What's going to be on, what do you want on the playlist? The Grateful Dead song? Oh, no. I want Stan Rogers' The Field Behind the Plow. Okay. All right. Because um, we are not paying anywhere near enough attention to our agricultural pursuits. Not even close. And I, I mean, if like there is a, a whole other, uh, that might be a whole other episode. If there is a catastrophe that's equal yeah. to or greater than the catastrophe in housing, it's the catastrophe in agriculture. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you cannot just imagine, take all the comments we just made about developers before, the risks, all of that, and just change the name to farmer. So mm-hmm. now you have some poor bastard or a family of poor bastards who are going to have to buy fuel at $2 a gallon for seeds that have gone way the hell up and mm-hmm. fertilizer that is double or even triple the price that it was last year. And we expect everything to be cool. This is not mm-hmm. cool. Yeah. So, yeah. And then stockpiles being destroyed or sequestered or unavailable. And I yeah. mean, we know what the answer is. The answer is clearly regenerative agriculture. That is not, you know, it rolls off the tongue. We know, we know what that means. We know we have to be raising grasses. We know we have to be going back to uh, recycling crops. And mm-hmm. it's all about the soil and not about the chemicals. Mm-hmm. But we cannot get from where we are to where we need to go. Unless we employ all the same disciplines that are required to, we need to indemnify, I know this is going to sound insane, we need to indemnify the developer 
so that the developer is incentivized to do something that is really good for the society. Mm-hmm. And that's not, you know, really good doesn't mean that what they're doing now is really bad. I don't mean that. I mean, we can do better. Mm-hmm. We know we can do better. We can we design things that are better on paper. They never get built. And they don't get built because nobody has the balls to give it a shot. You know, it's too expensive. It's too risky. Mm-hmm. And the same thing is exactly true of farmers. You have mm-hmm. to say to them, look, we will, we the society will indemnify you to make the transition to re- regenerative agriculture. Right. You don't, we don't have a choice. Right. And these were, that was what, um, I really did. It. I, I argued hard here, um, had intervener status on the, the sable gas, um, when they brought it, brought it ashore. And my argument was that we bring it on shore, we use it in Nova Scotia, we don't export it, and we actually use money generated from that when we, when we send it, when we do send some of it out as a slush fund that is, that, so, so that was when, when gas could have been a bridge fuel. It yep. can't now, but no. back in the, uh, the, the mid, early 90s, mid 90s, it could have been that. But instead, we're basically, we have depleted Sable pretty much and the, uh, it's all gone into the U.S. market except for just small, small, small bits. Yeah, of it. it's going to be, it's going to be very depressing to look at the, look at the graph, you know, that we crawl mm-hmm. along and then we get this huge energy spike and we go right back down and crawl along again. Yeah. And we have to, uh, we just absolutely must be smarter. And um, the, our political system, the way it's operating, um, makes it doubly difficult to do this. And, and the, the astonishing thing the astonishing thing from my point of view is that authoritarian regimes, the Chinese, for example, are going to be able to accomplish an awful lot more than the democracies are simply by virtue of the fact that somebody can say, oh, no, you don't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you're going to do it this way or the highway or we'll shoot you, I mean, to put it bluntly. Uh, so you don't really have a lot of choice. And they will, in fact, be able to respond to the requirements that are coming at us from the climate and from right. other things Whereas so the much rest more of us quickly are than the rest of us. Right, because we just have a theoretical gun at our heads. Yeah, we're is, going to be just standing science. on Parliament Hill science. in February screaming freedom, right. which about <laughs> which we know nothing. I mean, if you want freedom, uh, go go fight for the Ukrainians and then talk to us. So I have two questions for you, Oliver. But I know I don't apologize. This has been fantastic. And I know that I love the way that your thoughts make everything connected and and you can pull all the threads together. And it's one of the things that in my career, having listened to you speak a lot um, over the over the years as you know, formative years of me becoming the person I am in the industry, I really appreciate the fact that you have always been able to pull those threads together and tie them in a beautiful bow and say, we need to do these things because they are all connected. So here's these questions are pretty simple. First one is, what's your all-time favorite nerdy, delightful thing about building science? Wow. 
Wow, what a great question. I have to insert here. I think I have stumped the chump. This is great. <laughs> well, it's not. No, no, no. I have a quick, quick story to tell. When I was traveling in Japan, I traveled with an architect. And every time I asked him a question, and I asked him thousands, he would always go and have an intake of oh, breath through, through his, teeth. his teeth. And we got, we became very friendly. And it got to the point where I felt that I could ask him. And I said, you know, Kenji, when I ask you questions and you have the sharp intake of breath, am I annoying you? I mean, because I don't want to do that. And he said, oh, no, no, no. I'm just thinking of where to start. <laughs> so I'm just thinking about where to start. Um, I I love the fundamental requirement to make things visible as opposed to theoretical. And I remember having a physicist explain to me why thermopanes work. And we need molecules, and we need these molecules that are either convecting or they're radiating and crossing this space which optimizes at three quarters of an inch because that happens to be the way in which we suppress convection, yada da, yada da. And it doesn't have to be a window, it could be a wall or a roof. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And just being forced to visualize what is actually taking place. Air is a fluid. Now, if you want just that. Okay. I'm transfixed by the fact that air is a fluid. Who knew? Who knew? It's a very funny thing when you're doing training and people and you talk about, you know, fluids and you put air in there and they're like, wait, what? No. Yeah. No. No, exactly. Yeah. It's just, it's and it's just it's, a hoop. And it's one of the things that has become a real sticking point in terms of, you know, how do we get past COVID? It's ventilation. It's an airborne thing. Fluid dynamics needs to lead the charge and and Absolutely. And here's yeah. the deal. I mean, I don't do I, I have a deal with my doctor. They I don't do medicine. They don't do ventilation. That's mm -hmm. the way this has to be made mm -hmm. to work. And mm -hmm. the doctors are not cutting it at all. They're, oh, we just need to ventilate. No, you don't. You have no idea what's going on in this building. Some of them might even be overventilated. Uh, it's, no. Mm -hmm. HVAC people do ventilation. Doctors do germs. Yeah. And they might float around in the same fluid. <laughs> but, <laughs> so, second question. What building science BS drives you crazy oh uh, oh dear somewhere between bubble wrap and and thermal paint you know i just i i just can't do it anymore it's all magical it, thinking magical thinking it, i just can't <laughs> i cannot deal with it i just can't it's the, I, the high r value paint really does my head in I have a, a blog post that every once in a while resurfaces. I wrote it in like, I don't know, maybe 2003, 2002, that says 
Do not talk to me about bubble wrap or radiant barriers. Do, no, stop it. Um, and I remember having, you know, being at a trade show right next to um, uh, just just when um, spray foam, um, you know, the, the, um, medium density, so two, two pounds of spray foam was hitting the market and it came here. And man, were they intense, those sales guys. And they were, you know, the yes that they were spouting. And I just was in the in my little Be Free Homes booth next door to them and saying, trying to bite my tongue. And then they swaggered over and were chatting about their amazing thing. And I said, well, where's your third party verification on this? And it was like, oh, well, it works just like this. It's, it's an R value or equivalent R value. And that was the beginning of my rant. And I didn't stop until they walked away about 10 minutes later and they were kind of shaky. Yeah, good for you. But, I, 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 have a, I have a story. I'm in Russia. I'm lecturing in Russia. I'm lecturing in English and have a translator translating to Russian. And I'm speaking about windows and the difficulty of keeping them clear in the wintertime because of humidity escaping from the inside. And this one chap raises his hand and my translator turns to me and says, he knows the solution to this problem. And I said, well, please, what, what is that? And he said, the way we solve that problem here is we, my grandmother used to take a little dish and put kerosene in it and put the kerosene in between the two windows because in old Russian buildings, the outside pair of windows opens out mm -hmm. and the inside opens in. And so there are two panes of glass, and they're six and a half inches or so apart, not good for suppressing convection. And so I looked at him, and I thought about that, and I thought, you know, is there something that I'm missing here? Like, is there, is the, is the kerosene vaporizing and, like, doing something? And, you know, my, my little <laughs> molecules, what's going on in the space? And I said, God, man, that must smell terrible. And he said, no, it doesn't smell at all. It's no problem because we tape the windows up. <laughs> and I thought, right. <laughs> <laughs> right. This is about air sealing, not kerosene. Exactly. <laughs> That's a great story. I love it. Thank you so much for being with us today, Oliver. It's been great. And I think Good that we will... You. We will do another one because I think that sure. you can just keep going. So that's it for our episode today. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you for tuning in. This episode was produced by Blue House Energy, Podcast Atlantic, and Tanya Media. Subscribe and don't miss an episode. Leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time.